For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Tonight we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 3 and 4. We'll be covering a lot of verses. And I entitled this section, Spiritual Forces Collide. You know, if you just read the first couple chapters of Acts, you would think that things were off to a great start. The early church was growing. It was vibrant. Uh, In one day, it grew from 125 people to 3,125 people. So, I mean, it was an incredible movement of God. And so you can just... Stop right at Acts chapter 2 at the very end, and if you try to predict the trajectory of the church, you'd think that they were setting sail on a voyage that essentially would conquer the entire Roman Empire. And yet, what we see is immediately in chapter 3, storms blow in that are so violent that it actually threatens the existence of the church. You know, if you look at Acts chapter 1 and 2, really you could say that that is summarized by the work of the Holy Spirit. But we'll see in the next few chapters, chapters 3 through 6, that what's at work is the power of God's enemy. The Bible teaches that we're actually in the throes of a spiritual battle that's going on, and that we are at the center of that spiritual battle. And that any time we take ground for God's kingdom and His work, that God's enemy's not going to just stand around watching, that he's actually going to launch a counterattack, and we see that happening in this passage. Let's start in Acts chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. We're told Peter and John went to the temple one, one afternoon to take part in the 3 o'clock prayer service or the time of prayer. As they approached the temple, a man lame from birth was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the Beautiful Gate, so that he could beg from the people going into the temple. We're told that this guy was actually begging at this place called the Beautiful Gate, which was one of the central entrances into the court of the Gentiles. So this would have been an area that was very prominent in Jerusalem. had a lot of traffic coming in and out of there. And we're told that this guy was stationed right at the front, because he was lame from birth. Apparently, he had some sort of birth defect that um, caused him to be disabled. And uh, when we read later on, actually, we're told that this guy was in this condition for 40 years, that he was 40 years old. So this was a long-standing disability that this guy had, and it was so severe that his friends actually had to carry him each day to the front of the gates in order to beg. So it wasn't like this guy had difficulty walking. He was paralyzed. He was incapable of walking. Well, then we're told Peter saw, uh, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. Peter and John looked at him intently. And Peter said, look at us. And the lame man looked up at them eagerly, expecting some money. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. And then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. Now, 
when Peter grabbed this guy's arm, it wasn't because of unbelief, but it was out of compassion. He was helping this guy up. He wasn't just going to wait for this guy to get up, struggle to his feet. Not to mention, we see that he was probably following Jesus' lead. In another case, during Jesus' life, when he heals this girl who had died, Jairus' daughter, he actually grabs her hand and lifts her up in order to raise her from the dead. And so Peter was probably trying to follow in Jesus' footsteps. Well, we're told that as he is helping this guy up, that instantly this man's feet and ankles were healed and strengthened. So not only was his condition fixed at that moment, but also we're told that his, his feet and ankles were actually strengthened. I don't know if you've ever been around somebody who has been paralyzed for a number of years. A lot of times they lose a lot of muscle and bone density, and, and it's pretty obvious, too, when you look at their legs, because a lot of times it's, it's really skinny. And so you can just imagine that as Peter healed this guy, not only was his condition fixed, but uh, instantly his, his legs looked normal. They, they looked, you know, like uh, regular people's legs. Well, he jumped up, stood on his feet, and began to walk. Then walking, leaping, and praising God, he went into the temple with them, and the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. Luke describes three different ways of this guy on his feet, that he's walking, leaping, um, and that he went into the temple. And he says it twice for emphasis. He's just in total shock and amazement of what God has done in this guy's life. And so all the people saw him walking, and it apparently drew a large crowd. We're told when they realized he was the lame beggar that they had seen so often at the beautiful gate, they were absolutely astounded. Now, it's important for us to remember Jerusalem wasn't like a million-person city. It was much smaller than that. It was probably the size of like Mansfield, Ohio. So, you know, it was like maybe fifty or 60,000 people. And since this was, this guy was stationed at a central location in Jerusalem, most of the people probably would have known this guy. I remember when I used to go to Ohio State for my undergrad, uh, I would always take this route where I'd walk down 16th and then I'd hit High Street and I would cross over High Street to go to class. And Usually, um, year after year, you'd see the same guys begging there, and you, you got, kind of got familiar with seeing them. You know, that's probably what was happening here. These people were, were passing this guy um, as they were going into the temple. Who, you know, he was a regular fixture uh, right there at the temple gate. And so they instantly recognized this guy. Well, they all rushed out into amazement to Solomon's colony where the man was holding tightly to Peter and John. I'm not sure why he was holding on tightly to Peter and John. Maybe it was out of gratitude and thankfulness, like, you know, I'm just so amazed that you did this, and, and uh, maybe he wanted to spend time with them. Solomon's colony was actually a pretty big area, probably the size of a football field, and so this was a large area where people started to gather. Well, Peter saw his opportunity and addressed the crowd. He said, people of Israel, why is, it so, why, why is this so surprising? He says, and why do you stare at us as though we made this man walk by our own power or godliness? 
I think that's very interesting. It suggests that these people were starting to attribute this miracle to Peter and John, that they were starting to heap praise upon them for what they saw in this man's life. And I think that even though it's very subtle, this probably points to the fact that God's enemy was already launching his first counterattack. You know, Peter here, we see, refused to siphon off glory from God, which is one of the real perils of serving God. That when you start to see God work through you in a very powerful way, and people start to notice that, that there is a tendency where people will actually start to attribute the great things that you're doing to your goodness or to your own power, or to your own skill. And I think that it's very easy in those cases to try to take the glory for ourselves. You know, when God strikes a blow for his kingdom, you can anticipate that there's going to be a counterattack from his enemy. And one of the ways that he tries to do this is to try to get us to take credit for what God is doing. And the reason he does that is he understands that when we start to take credit for the work that God has done in people's lives, that long-term, we're not going to be of any usefulness to God's work. God's enemy was attempting to get Peter to take credit for something that God did. We see actually a parallel case in Acts chapter 14 when the apostle Paul goes into the city of Lystra. And as he walks into the city, he sees a man very similar to Peter who was paralyzed from birth, and he heals this man. And as a crowd formed, he started to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And apparently there was uh, a number of Jewish leaders there who fomented a riot and an uprising against Paul, and eventually they ended up stoning him outside of the city. Now one Bible teacher pointed out that one of the greatest perils that Paul faced in the city of Lystra wasn't when he actually got stoned and persecuted, but it was earlier when the people rushed out and were trying to worship them, him and Barnabas as gods. That when we start to do things for God, it's very easy for people to want to attribute that to us and what we are doing. And it's very important for us to resist that temptation to take credit for something that God actually did. Well, we're told in verse 13, for it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. And so he automatically attributes all of this to what Jesus has done. He says, this is the same Jesus who you handed over and rejected before Pilate. Despite Pilate's decision to release him, you rejected this holy righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. Many of these same people were ones in the crowd who were yelling, crucify, crucify, as Jesus was on on trial before them in the city earlier. He said, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Luke, uh, Peter uses this striking oxymoron that the giver of life was himself deprived of life. 
And he says, we are witnesses of this fact. We saw this all uh, happen. He says, through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed, and you know how crippled he was before. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. Now, he's not saying that this guy's faith was what healed him, but that it was uh, Peter's faith in Jesus and the power working through him that enabled him to carry this out. He says, friends, I realize that you and your leaders did to Jesus what was done in ignorance. I thought, I thought that was, you know, as I read this, that he articulated something very interesting here, that what they did was in ignorance. Now, when you look at people today, whenever they do something, it's very easy for them to say, well, I didn't understand what was going to happen. I didn't fully realize the consequences of my actions. And they use that as a justification for their guilt. And yet, what Peter points out here is there's, a such, there's such a thing as what you might call culpable ignorance. That even though you didn't know the extent of your actions, that they were wrong, or what kind of impact they would have, that that doesn't exempt you from your responsibility. In many cases, culpable ignorance is that we refuse to know the truth or refuse to listen to what God has to say. And so even though they didn't understand that they were crucifying the author of life, that didn't exempt them from their responsibility. He says, but God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer all of these things. He said, what you saw happening there, even though you participated in these things, all of this had been predicted long ago by God through the prophets in the Old Testament, that the Messiah, God's chosen one, must suffer these things. And he says, now you must repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins might be wiped away. Now, some of you might be visitors here. You may not quite understand what this, you know, the Bible is all about. Maybe you have preconceived notions that the Bible is all about following rules and doing good things and trying to stay away from being a bad person. But <clears throat> the Bible actually says that the central message that God wants to communicate to each and every one of us is that he loves us. And that he wants to show us incredible mercy. But that we are actually separated from him. That we are at odds with him because of our moral wrongdoing. But that he has taken the step toward us by sending his own son Jesus to die. And the Bible says that if we simply repent, that is, if we have a change of mind, if we decide to turn away from our way of thinking and, and decide to turn to God, that he says in that moment we can have our sins wiped away based on what Jesus has done. Well, he says, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything that he tells you. So, he flips back in his Bible and he starts showing them evidence from the Old Testament. And he points out that there was this guy, this prophet, who anyone who uh, will not listen to this prophet will be completely cut off from God's people. 
it's unclear when you look at this passage in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, who this guy actually is. And over time, at least during Jesus' time, most people identified this prophet as the Messiah, the chosen one of God. And so he points to this Old Testament passage as evidence for belief in Christ. He says, starting with Samuel, every prophet spoke about what is happening today. You are the children of those prophets, and you're included in the covenant God promised to your ancestors. For God said to Abraham, through your descendants, all the families on earth will be blessed. And so he starts listing off all of these different ways that God predicted long ago that the Messiah would come. And he says, when God raised up his servant, Jesus, he sent him first to you, people of Israel, to bless you by turning each of you back from your sinful ways. So if you look at the, just Peter's speech and examine it, I mean, he points to the fact that this was Moses' prophet that he spoke about, that he is Abraham's seed who would bless all the nations. And Apparently, the people were very intrigued by this because they didn't, like, gather up a bunch of stones to, to kill Peter and, and the apostles. And so they were intrigued by what he was saying. And <clears throat> at this point, God's enemy launches his counterattack against Peter, his second one. Acts chapter 4. In verse 1 and 2, we're told, while Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priest, the, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. And these leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus, there is a resurrection from the dead. Now, a little bit of background, these guys, the Sadducees, these were sort of like the religious elite, the ruling class in Israel. Now, these guys were Jewish, but they held views that were a little bit different than the Pharisees, who are often described in the Gospels. These Sadducees didn't actually believe that there was such a thing as a bodily resurrection. And so they were disturbed that Peter and John were teaching that there was actually a bodily resurrection. And we're told they arrested them, and since it was already evening, they put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it. These people listening so that the number of believers now totaled about 5,000 men, not counting women and children. That's how they used to, to keep tabs in the ancient world and that whenever they would do a census. So if you included the women and the children, we're talking about at least 10,000 people, and then you throw in a couple thousand more maybe, or maybe another 5,000, and we're talking about 15,000 believers in the early church. And so it's clear that the message of Christ is now spreading like wildfire. Well, the next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. Now, these guys, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and Annas, we don't really know too much about John and Alexander. Most people think that John or Jonathan was actually the successor of Caiaphas, who happened to be the high priest at the time. But these two guys, Annas and Caiaphas, we know a lot about them from history. Annas was actually the high priest um, prior to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. And he served for, uh, as a high priest for about eight years. 
But the Romans deposed him and in his place put his son Caiaphas, his son-in-law Caiaphas, who then ruled for another 18 years as the high priest. But most of the Jewish people regarded Annas as the legitimate high priest. And so that's why Luke refers to him as the high priest. Now, these guys also appear in the Gospel of Luke because they were the central figures behind Jesus' crucifixion. They were the ones who sent Jesus to be murdered by Pontius Pilate. And so you can just imagine Peter and John standing there in front of the two guys who were responsible for crucifying their Lord. And I'm sure a flood of questions just started to come into their mind. I'm sure that Peter probably thought back to the last time he was in this situation when Jesus was arrested and when he, cow, cower, in a very cowardly way, decided to, to deny him three times. I'm sure he probably thought to himself, is it going to happen again? He probably thought to himself as he looked at Caiaphas and Annas, I wonder if I'm going to suffer the same fate as my Lord. He knew that these guys were, were willing to lie, perjure, in order to have somebody killed. They saw it happen with, with Jesus. And so maybe they thought to themselves, we're going to see the same fate as Jesus. And so it makes you wonder, what, what are they going to say as they stand before these guys? Well, we're told they brought the two disciples in and demanded, by what power, whose name have you done this? Well, uh, as Peter's sitting there, you know, probably pondering what to say, I'm sure the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 21 popped into his head, where Jesus said, you're going to be dragged into synagogues and prisons, and you'll stand trial before kings and governors because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. So don't worry in advance about how you're going to answer these charges for I'll give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you. And so I'm sure that Peter's probably thinking about this as he's formulating a response. You know, I think what this points to is that anytime we try to take ground for God and his kingdom, we can expect persecution. This may come as a surprise to some of us because usually when we sign up, to follow Christ. It's because we think that we have, we're, we're embarking on a new life that's, that's filled with happiness and joy minus any suffering. And when suffering enters into our lives, we're sadly disappointed. We feel like the wheels are coming off. Maybe God is angry at me for the things that I've done. And it's really easy, I think, when we face persecution and suffering to feel like, well, I'm just not sure that, that I signed up for this. And yet God does not promise that you are going to have a life that is devoid of suffering. He never says that. In fact, I think if you probably did like some sort of analysis of the average life of a Christian, the average life of a non-Christian person, I bet you on average they suffer about the same as a non-Christian person, maybe even more. The difference would be that God promises to give us purpose and meaning in the suffering. I remember as a non-Christian person, I'd I'd experience suffering and people would tell me these, these statements like, 
you know, just hang in there because it, this suffering is just going to make you stronger. And I just never felt like that was actually true. It just made me mad that I was suffering. It made me more bitter at my life. And it made me wonder, why, why am I going through this? And yet God promises that he can actually use our suffering, not only for good in our lives, but also to grow his kingdom in powerful ways. And so we can expect persecution. You know, and really, I think that persecution can be a positive thing. Surprisingly, that God can actually use this in our lives. I think it, it can be healthy for the church as well. You know, when you think about many of the great movements of Christianity in the world, many of them are happening in pockets where people are experiencing the most amount of persecution. So God can actually use persecution to further spread the message of Christ. Secondly, I think that it has a purifying effect. A lot of times, people are just sort of hanging around because they're looking for how Christianity will benefit their lives, but as soon as persecution enters their life, they're like, I'm out of here. I'm done. And so you'll see that it purifies the church, and I think that it gives followers of Christ an opportunity to suffer victoriously, and that can also bring about a, a, a light, a beacon to the world that looks on and sees these people of God suffering unjustly. And, and as we look at the rest of this passage, it gives us an idea of how we should respond to persecution. I think the first thing that we should keep in mind here is that to be forewarned is to be forearmed. You know, when you think about if you're like in a fight or something like that, I don't know if you're familiar with that. I've been in quite a few fights in my life. <clears throat> and I'm not talking about verbal fights. But, um, you know, the worst thing that could happen to you is if you're just standing there and somebody just, you know, sucker punches you. That's where they hit you and you don't, like, know it's coming. A lot of times you're going to get, you know, laid out. You see people, like, you know, get completely knocked out and starched, you know, on the ground like this uh, because they get sucker punched. But if you see the punch coming, you know, you're able to brace yourself, maybe even try to protect yourself, and um, it's helpful. You can usually, uh, you know, take the blow and uh, move on. Or, and so I think that sometimes people get blindsided when they encounter persecution or suffering because they never saw it coming in the first place. And so it's important for us to understand that we will face suffering. If we're radical in our faith for God, we are going to experience persecution. Maybe not on the, the scale or the level that we see in other places in the world, but certainly people are going to mock us. People are going to sneer at us. People may even put pressure on us to conform to the values of this world. And so it's important for us to understand that this is coming so that we don't get surprised. In fact, Peter tells us in one of his letters, 1 Peter 4.12, he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised as, as if fi these fiery trials you're going through are some strange thing. Shouldn't be surprised by this. You should know it's coming. Peter, we're told, was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers and elders of the people, 
Are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man that you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And when he says that this is the man that you crucified, he literally meant the man that you guys authorized to crucify, the one that you handed over to Pilate. And so these guys were guilty. He says, there is no salvation in anyone else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. You know, modern readers read stuff like this, and I think that they chafe against statements that suggest the exclusivity of Christ. You know, we live in a culture today where most people believe, you know, each path is basically one way to get to God, whether it's Hinduism, whether it's Islam, whether, whether it's Buddhism. And so, essentially, it doesn't matter what you believe because, essentially, we're all reaching the same place of salvation. Yet, when you look at Peter's statement here, he really puts us in sort of a dilemma where he says there is salvation and and no one else, referring to Jesus. And there is no other way for us to receive salvation other than through Christ. So, if we're to take the Bible on its own terms, then we're either to say Peter is incorrect in his statement here and someone else is right, or maybe everybody else is wrong too. But we cannot say that, that Christianity is true and other world religions are true at the same time because Peter here is making an exclusive statement about Jesus being the basis for salvation. And a lot of times when people say, well, you know, all religions are sort of different paths that lead to the top of the mountain, most of the time they are not taking these world religions based on their own terms. Usually they're warping those world religions' views in order to try to make it fit with their view. Well, then we're told the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. And they also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. And so these uh, words here, ordinary and no special training. In Greek, the word agramatos and idiotes. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to kind of get the meaning of that. Um, it's not as severe as it sounds. Uh, agramatos uh, simply means somebody who is not like uh, professionally trained as a rabbi. And idiotes is somebody who is like a lay person or a non-professional. And so he's saying these guys are not trained rabbis and yet they're speaking with such incredible wisdom. And they also recognize that these guys were also with Jesus, who if you look at um, Jesus in his life, people had the same sort of view of Jesus. We're told in John 7 verse 15 that the Jewish people were amazed and asked, how did this man Jesus get such learning without having studied? You know, Jesus and his followers were all these um, guys from rural areas, kind of the uh, sticks of Jerusalem. And so they were sort of surprised, you know, that's like some, some dude from, 
you know, the rural parts of eastern Kentucky coming out and, uh, you know, speaking about astrophysics or something like that. It'd be uh, very interesting. Well, anyway, since they could see the man who had been healed standing there right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. They were speechless. You know, I think uh, this points to the fact that when you look at Peter, uh, his response to persecution was to resist the impulse to retaliate. You know, he, he spoke the message of Christ to these guys. He didn't launch it on, uh, off into some tirade against them. And I think that's important because, you know, when we face persecution, our natural instinct is to want to try to strike back or attack. And yet Peter didn't do that. Paul in Romans 12, verse 17 through 21 says explicitly, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He understands. It doesn't matter how you act. People may not respond to that. People might continue to persecute you, but as long as it's possible and as far as it depends on you, you should try to live at peace with everyone. He says, don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So he's saying, don't retaliate, but instead, when somebody persecutes you, show them love, serve them. By doing so, you'll actually heap burning coals on their head. I remember um, when I first moved on my street, when I bought my house, I had a number of people over there. And uh, there was one guy who, in particular, had a uh, very uh, interesting laugh. Uh, needless to say, it was loud and, and quite obnoxious. We were out on the front porch sort of bantering and stuff. And it was late at night. It was like 12 o'clock at night. He, you know, starts laughing like a hyena. This woman, my next door neighbor, comes out and uh, she slams open her door and starts screaming, don't you know that it is midnight? And then, you know, a bunch of colorful words started rolling out of her mouth. <clears throat> Things that I can't really say up here anyway. And so, you know, I was just like, oh, I'm so sorry or whatever. And uh, so we retreated back into the house. I have to say, I was pretty angry about that. I wanted to do things to her car, maybe her house. <laughs> I envisioned different things that I could say to her. But, you know, I was like, I think that maybe I, I need to listen to Paul's advice here and actually try to serve her and, and try to make peace with her as, as much as I possibly can. And so, you know, at the time I was uh, doing beekeeping and I had a huge harvest and so I went around to all my neighbors and gave them a pound of honey. And, you know, as I knocked on the door, she opened the door. And, and of course, you know, there was this look on her face. She was kind of bracing herself because this is the first time I interacted with her after two months since the incident. You know, I handed her some honey. I was like, hey, so, uh, you know, I just wanted to give you this, you know, since you're my neighbor or whatever, I harvested this. And you could tell she just did not know what to do. And so I think we need to... to to go beyond simply resisting retaliation, but actually trying to show people love and uh, trying to be a good witness for Christ. 
You know, also responding to persecution, we need to let our good deeds silence the critics. You know, we need to, we need to serve and love people in our community so that when people launch accusations against us and our reputation, there are going to be people who are also non-Christians who are like, I know these people. And they're not like that. Think about what happened here in verse 14. There was nothing that the council could say in response to Peter and what he was saying. You know, in 1 Peter 2.15, Peter says, For it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. And so as we serve and love people, when we are a beacon of light at our workplace, when we're the hardest workers there, when we're the ones who, who refuse to complain and, and contribute to the backbiting and the, the hypocrisy that we see at work, um, we are able to silence the ignorant talk of foolish people who accuse us of things that are not true. Well, then we're told they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves. What should we do with these men, they asked each other. We can't deny that they performed a miraculous sign and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. And so they're sort of stuck in this pickle. They're like, what are we going to do? I don't know. Uh, Everyone knows that this guy who was formerly paralyzed now is standing and that they're attributing that to Peter's healing power. Well, but to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak in anyone, uh, to anyone in Jesus' name again. And so they called the apostles back in and commanded them never to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, he says, do you, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We can't stop telling him about everything that we've seen and heard. And so I think this points to yet another way to respond to persecution, which is that we need to subvert the system through godly defiance. There are going to be times where our values, our priorities are going to collide with what people are telling us to do. In that case, we need to make a, a, an analysis, a cost analysis, and figure out what am I willing to lose here in order to maintain my conviction in following Christ. In this case, Peter said, look, you can try to silence me. You can try to put a gag order on me. But ultimately, your edict can't overturn God's decree. So we're told the council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. So they were afraid that the people were going to riot against them because so many of them had turned to Christ. Everybody was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. Well, when they were released, we're told as soon as they were free, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had to say. And when they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. And so they declared what God had done. And then the first order Uh, the the first action step that they decided to take was to pray. And I think this also points to another way to respond to persecution, which is that we need to subvert the system through prayer. That um, we realize that we are in the throes of a spiritual battle and that our reasoning, our skill, our gifting 
is nothing in comparison to God's enemy and what he can bring to the table. So we need to engage in spiritual warfare through prayer by unleashing God's power. We're told that they prayed, O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. Notice how he begins the prayer. He says, O sovereign Lord. This was a term that was used of somebody who had unassailable power. They were acknowledging the sovereignty of God in the midst of this terrible situation. I think this points to yet another principle for responding to persecution is that we need to cast our mind on God's sovereignty. You know, when you're facing persecution, it's easy to feel like, man, everything is going to fall apart or to imagine that things are going to end. And it's important for us to, to cast our minds on the fact that God is with us and that he really is the only source of true protection. He's the only one who can actually put a hedge of protection around us. Well, he says, you spoke long ago about the Holy Spirit through your ancestor David, your servant, saying, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, which is another term for God's uh, Messiah or chosen one. Now he's quoting from Psalm chapter 2. And it's interesting when you actually read a little bit further in the context, um, Peter doesn't include this part, but in response to the nations raging and the people plotting in vain, we're told that in Psalm 2 verse 4, but the one who rules in heaven laughs and the Lord scoffs at him. One of the few times that we're told God laughed. And uh, you can kind of imagine how things must kind of look from heaven, from God's perspective. You know, all these tiny little people raising their puny fists. I'm going to get you. Ah! And God just looking down like, what are you going to do? Oh, I'm so scared. Um, you know, it must look ridiculous that we are revolting against the God of the universe. And he looks on and he scoffs, laughs how ridiculous this is. Well, we're told, in fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor of the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will said that about God. Now, some people think that this means God actually ordered these people to kill Jesus and to do this treacherous act. But Peter clarifies earlier in Acts 2 verse 23 that this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And so it was based on God's foreknowledge that he ordered this. He, he knew how people would respond to the coming of his son, Jesus. Not that he actually predestined them to commit evil. And then finally, in verse 29 and 31, we're told, And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us your servants great boldness in preaching your word. And so this leads us to our last response to persecution, is which we need to pray for boldness. Pray for courage. You know, when we face persecution, what the evil one wants us to do is to go underground with our faith, to cower in fear. And instead, we need to pray for boldness that God will 
help us to proclaim the message of Christ in a way that's not offensive, but with a sense of confidence. And finally, after this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. And so you have your story there. 60-something verses. Not bad. Well, as sort of a postscript to this, it's interesting in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, Luke tells us that God's message continued to spread and the number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. So probably many of the people whom Peter was addressing directly here, indicting them for their, their hand in crucifying Jesus, Many of them were, were cut to the heart and decided that they wanted to repent. Well, let's draw some application. I think the first thing is that if you gain fresh ground for God's kingdom, don't be surprised when you encounter a counterattack from God's enemy. You're going to experience it. Don't be surprised. And often, Satan will anticipate that we are going to do something for God and he will actually try to discourage us. He'll try to accuse us right before God uses us in a powerful way. I've experienced that many times. In fact, I experience that most weeks. You know, as I, I, as I get up to, to speak for God, uh, I just have these sinking feelings like no one's going to listen to you. It doesn't matter what you say. Who are you? How are you qualified to speak for God? Over the years, I've learned to identify that that's God's enemy trying to neutralize my effectiveness. And so we need to understand and identify that the evil one will try to thwart us in our efforts to expand God's kingdom. Secondly, um, if you're here tonight and you don't know God in a personal way, I'd encourage you to let God sweep away your sins. Remember when Peter said, if you repent, God will wipe away all of your sins and forgive them. That's God's offer to you. God doesn't want to punish you. God doesn't want to judge you. In fact, he's gone to great lengths in order to forgive you. But he's left the decision in your hands. Whether you will repent, whether you will turn away from your self-justification project trying to validate your own goodness or your own worth based on the things that you do and instead turn to Jesus and what he has done in order to experience forgiveness. Yeah, thanks to your Holy Spirit empowers us in supernatural ways. I was thinking about how um, what Peter did here probably wasn't his natural inclination. We saw what, ha- what his natural inclination was in um, the Gospels when he uh, cowered and uh, denied you. And um, we thank you that you give us the Holy Spirit to overcome our deficiencies and to give us boldness to uh, serve you. And um, we pray that we can uh, look to this example that Peter gives to us, Lord, of um, resisting persecution or resisting um, uh, glorifying ourselves and also, uh, you know, responding to persecution in a godly way. 
And um, I pray that we can uh, be people who uh, shine as a beacon of light in uh, the dark world that we live in. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.